Hello and welcome to the 83rd episode of the Machine Ethics Podcast. This episode we're talking with Adam Browse. It was recorded on the 25th of October 2023. We chat about natural stupidity and natural intelligence, misericordianism and avoidable misery, the idea of a misery detector, human instincts, we chat about Asimov's rules, we also muse about the positive outcomes of AI technologies. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go to machine-ethics.net. You can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can follow us on Twitter, machine underscore ethics, Instagram, machine ethics podcast, or YouTube, youtube.com forward slash at machine-ethics. And if you can, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thanks again and hope you enjoy. Hi, Adam. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. If you could just introduce yourself, who you are, and what you do. Hey there, Ben. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, my name's Adam Browse, and uh, I'm a, uh, my day job is a professor of uh, computer science. I'm the chair of computer science at Dominican University. Uh, it's an applied program, so it's, it's very much like training web developers. So that's kind of what I do day in and day out. But then, uh, yeah, I'm also, uh, my, my actual... Uh, training is in ethics and uh, and I'm and I'm doing some work on that right now so it was so exciting when you contacted me and uh, I was able to listen to your great podcast ah thank you very much uh you're too gracious um I I believe you sent me a message about a year ago and I just put it in the kind of maybe I'll get back to that pile in my inbox and then I suddenly realized I, I kind of went back to some of the stuff and went oh yeah that that would be good and it would be good now because um, we've had quite a few kind of um, sort of more practical or things which are more zeitgeisty episodes. So it's nice. So thank you as a bit of a cleanser to come back to like kind of pure academic sort of um, stuff. And and that's kind of how I feel about. um, So you sent me your book as well. And uh, hopefully we'll have a review up at that once I finished it. I've got about uh, probably three quarters of the way through it now. And yeah, it's great. So yeah, not uh, too dense. The future of good, not not a very dense. It's it's pretty readable, right? It's like stories mostly, and yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's meant to be kind of like a approachable, fun thing to read. Yeah, it's it's very. Let's say it's an easy read. <laughs> yeah, I think I did it yeah. kind of backwards from most academics. I think I do my whole most things I do I do backwards. So like I don't have a PhD, but I actually am the chair of a department. People are like, "How did that happen?" And then I I I, I wrote a nonfiction sort of fun book to read, like for popular nonfiction. And now I'm writing academic papers about that. So I'm actually having to kind of tighten up the thinking and do all the citations and everything. Whereas most academics, they write the really really academicy thing, and then they write a stilted sort of hard to read nonfiction book about it. You know, so I like I don't know. I go backwards. Yeah, it's good. It's good to go backwards sometimes. Well, I uh, still enjoying it, and I will ask you uh, further about that in a second because I have quite a few things I have to say about it. Um, sure. First, on the podcast, the thing we always ask is, Adam, what is AI? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I listened to so many episodes and I got to hear this question over and over again. And I, I decided I would be like a politician and I would answer the question I wished you asked me instead of the one you do. And I, I think what I'd like to say is, uh, is, is I'd like to define NS. Do you know NS? 
you probably don't because I'm just I just made it up for this podcast. Mm. But it's it's natural stupidity. You know, we we don't talk about people are talking a lot about AI, mm. but they're not talking about NS. You know, and I I think it's important for us. You know, I'll just I'll just throw that out there that AI if AI is a kind of intelligence, if it's a kind of light, if it's like light, what is the darkness that it's inside of that it's kind of illuminating and kind of dispelling. And I think that's NS, natural stupidity. Uh, and there's some ethical concerns, I think. I mean, you might even argue, what's going to put the nukes in the air? Is it going to be AI that's run amok? Or is it going to be the kind of ever-present uh, devil at our, our elbow here, which is natural stupidity? Is that the kind of like human stupidity? Or? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> humans, humans. I mean, humans have been able to achieve a lot, you know, largely through the division of labor and, you know, allegiance to certain good ideals from the enlightenment and science mm. and stuff. But, but m when you look around at the problems in society and the risks, you know, existential risks, right? X risk or whatever, it's mostly due to like, really really stupid choices and things that are persistent and we 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 like to act like like things are complicated or like problems in the world are super complicated and to some extent they are but other times and i think even most times the problems in the world are actually just like really stupid you know um it's clear like for i'll just i mean healthcare in the united states of america mm -hmm. a for-profit healthcare system that we spend 17 percent of our gdp uh doing healthcare when anyone with a brain knows that you could just create a public option or a universal payer or adopt something more like a kind of Dutch system where there's universal coverage by private insurers, whatever, there's a million ways to do it. But if you had universal coverage, the, the prices would drop by half. You'd only be spending about 8% of your GDP on it. You'd save trillions of dollars over, over decades. Uh, and, and it's obvious, it's not, and, and it's, uh, you know, you, some people say it's greed, but I think it's more than greed. It's it's like a kind of stupidity uh, that allows us to keep doing this like tremendously stupid, stupid thing. And so and so when you put when you start to talk about AI, um, I mean people get kind of nervous because it's new. But if but if the premise is that it's actual intelligence, it is intelligence. Then boy, do I have some stupidity for it to come and help with. <laughs> There's so much stupidity everywhere. Uh. Yeah, so I'm very, I'm very, I'm very pro AI. I'm very AI philic. Yeah, I feel like you almost want the AI to go, uh, guys. Um, why haven't you got the healthcare sorted out? You know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can sort that out for you in about ten minutes because uh, anybody can. It's really an easy question. Yeah. What? You, that's just something you should have done by now. Come on, get on it. Um, that would be nice. I, I think a system which tells you all the, it's kind of like a simulation, isn't it? Like this is. This is probably yeah. a better way of running things, guys. And yeah. they're probably all things we know. <laughs> yeah, I actually have a sort of, I actually wonder if there isn't some interest by like, you know, billionaires. Like Elon Musk says, you know, we should like be really careful with AI and regulate it and be slow with it and sort of develop it in this really, really careful way. I, you know, I mean, I wonder if that isn't just him trying to not lose his job, right? I mean, I think an AI can do the job of like a, you know, billionaire flyboy a lot better than, than any of our billionaire flyboys, you know? And I, and so there's a, there's a kind of risk not to like, there's a risk to like truck drivers and, you know, kind of, you know, technological unemployment for, for the masses of people, but there's really a risk for like 
CEOs, stockbrokers, hedge fund managers, private equity people, like those are the people who I think AI can do their job way better. Like so, like so much better. So, so instantly, like even early, early versions of AI will be able to be better than they are at their jobs. Yeah. But you still need someone to go to the golf course and stuff though, right? Oh, oh yeah. Well, we yeah. can send a robot. We can send a golf, a golf robot. <laughs> there was just this, uh, there was this just expose on, on John Oliver about McKinsey, right? Who, who supposedly is like, you know, this intelligent, right? We're talking about intelligence and stupidity mm -hmm. here. So supposedly McKinsey is like, oh my God, you know, McKinsey's so intelligent. Oh, it's all blah, 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 blah. They're so smart. They're so whatever. And then it turns out that pretty much all they do is they just get hired. They come in, they say you should fire, you know, a third of your mm -mm. people. You know, they just do the same thing. They just do the same playbook for every company. Fire everybody, outsource everybody, you know, and then the then the executives say, oh, well, sorry, McKinsey said we have to fire you. It's not that we want to fire you. Yeah, and that's yeah, the, yeah. really the only reason they hire McKinsey is so that they have someone to pin all the layoffs on. And then yeah. the McKinsey walks out and does it again the next day somewhere else. It's like they're not actually doing anything that intelligent, right? If, they, if there actually was an AI, right, that was actually intelligent, that would be amazing for the economy because all these numbskulls would be out of a job and we would actually have, or maybe they would use the AI, yeah, but they yeah, wouldn't yeah. just come in and say, fire everybody, you know, which is just yeah. stupid. Um, they, they'd say, they'd come in and say, well, what's your innovation strategy and how are we going to transition and how are we going to do these things, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, instead of, yeah. So I'm, yeah, let's bring in some intelligence. Let's have some actual intelligence in our society. Now, my job is actually what is, is in the realm of NI, natural intelligence. Mm. Natural intelligence is, is quite, I think is more in some ways, I mean, AI is interesting because it's novel. But, but natural intelligence, I think, is an actually more immediate opportunity, um, at least has been for the past, you know, couple thousand years. Mm. And, and that's training human beings to be more intelligent, you know. Um, and I, I still think that's an under underappreciated uh, opportunity, right? I guess the promise of AI, right, the, the kind of end game is that there is this thing which is going to always be, air quotes, like more intelligent because... It, or in certain ways more intelligent for sure um, because it has access to things that we do not have access to and we might be more pliable and resilient and uh, multi-dimensional dexterous and things like that than machines that we have currently but we we definitely don't have more access to memory <laughs> uh, data right. you know these sorts of things which it, it's kind of like this is you know, it's not apples and it's not apples to apples at that point, right? It's like there's this other thing, and we just happen to be calling it AI, and it does this other thing, which is better in this way. And right. for me, for sure, it's like we well, we can leverage that stuff for cool stuff. We can we can do really interesting things with that new set of tools and capabilities. And the cultural aspect is we're jumping straight to okay, it's going to take over the world. It's going to take all our jobs, whatever, and um, I guess coming back to that natural stupidity piece is that, well, we can use it for stupid. We can carry on, you know, making stupid decisions with this uh, or good decisions. <laughs> it doesn't really help us with that, you know, <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> necessarily. Yeah. Um, and that's where, that's where natural intelligence comes in, right? Like we yeah. had, like the opportunity is to 
So like like we spend how many billions of dollars developing AI and how many more billions of dollars will we will we spend, you know, trying to train these AIs, you know? I I wonder yeah. about like what if those billions were put towards natural intelligence? How much better of a society, you know, I I've been training people to be software engineers and we we have a very novel program and I'm actually I'm actually building a new college as well that's kind of like an Oxford for everybody. It's a one-on-one tutoring based college called Elton College. And, you know, we can educate someone with a, a world-class MBA for about $20,000 and it takes about a year, you know, and it's mm. scalable, it's scalable globally to the whole world. I mean, we could, you know, we could do it infinitely because you just hire more teachers and train more students. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, if you put like as much money as you're putting into AI startup into my new college, you know, we could train like many thousands of 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 these amazing business people who could go around and, and wouldn't just say, oh, cut 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 people at the bottom and increase executive compensation. Hi, we're McKinsey. That's all we do. That's our single play in our playbook. You know, we open our playbook. It has one page in it. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like, uh, so yeah. I I just um, and also you wouldn't have the danger. I mean, you'd have the danger of AI, but you'd you'd have more competent humans to cope with that danger. Mm-mm. you know and you might have a functioning democracy too so one problem with natural stupidity and the lack of natural intelligence you know meaning education is the biggest cleavage between like demographically the biggest cleavage between Donald Trump voters and not Donald Trump voters is a college education mm-hmm. that that is the biggest cleavage more than age more than wealth more than where they live ge- geographically more than anything is just if you're educated, you can't be tricked by the orange bad man. If you aren't educated, you can be tricked by the orange bad man. And so, you know, the to me, the real risk of, you know, existential risk, at least of democracy, is again, natural intelligence, the shortage of natural intelligence, not the short, you know, not other things. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I feel like you could cut that mustard is that saying cut the mustard um you can cut that i don't that know what that means but i don't yeah, know what that means either let's I've cut f- the mustard let's cut the mustard in um in different ways um but i'm, I'm avoiding going there right now uh because <laughs> we we have only a short amount of time relatively and i wanted to dig into um your book because um it's provocatively named and it has some uh let's say provocative ideas if you're a ethicist or a philosopher in it very, so i thought for those very. people who are interested in that sort of stuff we could dig into that and then we'll 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 dig up the ai stuff as we go yeah yeah and um, i talk about it in the book too yeah there's a whole chapter on it so yeah. exactly um so the, the book is called the future of good which is uh interesting title and i think um it mis- it's misrepresented by the picture on the front i don't know how you feel about that uh-huh sure Sure. Uh, um, because it's got two little robots on the front, so I feel like it's like like toy robots, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that represents what you're going for. But anyway, the, the key idea that you're trying to get across um, again and again in the book, which is represented in different ways and explored in different uh, avenues and historically, is this idea of this word, which I'm going to totally not be able to pronounce now, um, <laughs> which is misericordianism. Yeah, misericordianism. Yeah, misericordianism. Yeah, which is just my label for, um, for a, a kind of a kind of type of a, an ethical theory. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like if you're listening to the podcast, you're probably aware of um, the types of ethical theories that there are um, out there. And this is tightly associated, I would say, with utilitarianism or consequentialism. Yeah, it, is, it, it seems to be. I'm, it actually, seems I'm starting to, be. to think that it isn't, actually. But okay. it, yeah, it seems to be. It, uh, yeah. it, it, it's sort of decision procedure is yes. consequentialist, but its actual basis is not. It's it's based on human nature and evolution, by brain science. Yeah. Whereas yeah. consequentialism isn't based on any of that. That's just based on the sort of self-evidentness of it being good to have better things, more yeah, happiness, more, more pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Logical. Yeah. It's self-evident, kind of... really. Yeah. Yeah. Utilitarianism is sort of self-evident. Yeah. Um. And if I'm go- I'm going to basically have a go at what this means, and then we'll see how uh-huh, far sure. we far go. Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. So in let's the book, see if I wrote the book right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like <laughs> I didn't do the cover right, so <laughs> I agree. Oh uh, no! I mean, I mean, that's just my opinion, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I agree with you. I agree. With you. <laughs> the the idea of I I bring up consequentialism because there's like often like the scales and you're like weighing up like the good and the bad and like if it weighs out more good then you probably go for it then one other option you like it's like this weighing uh, procedure almost whereas what you're saying is like we can weigh this we can do the weighing procedure fine but we should actually start actually like segmenting what we're weighing like and have two scales like that's how i imagine it there's like two scales and all the things which are um, you say avoidably um, avoidable misery in in the book. Um, you weigh all that stuff first, and you kind of you deal with that stuff first, and then you weigh the things that we can do to increase happiness as a Afterwards. like yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a side effect of like having done with the misery stuff first. Yeah, it's kind of like pouring water into like a basin, and then when that basin overflows, then you can mm. fill in the next basin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Or something um, like that, yeah. Except for it's removing. So, anyways, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a prioritizing of the, of one over the other. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and for me, it feels like if we just did that today, it would just, it would kind of get over the idea that you have in the book around about bringing in some of these thought experiments, right? So there's a thought experiment about the drowning girl. Yeah. And um, how you think about uh, moral urgency when it's not in front of you, right? So there's right. there's something happening over here, but it's probably in a third world con- country or a developing country, and you, it's it's very difficult to feel uh, urgency over that thing, which may definitely be happening still and and exist. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe if we were thinking more kind of generally about avoidable misery, we'd be. Um, I, I like to think that we would be dealing with global poverty and, and things like that, like quicker and at, at haste. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the consequence of of doing this idea is that you know we tidy up the basics for people all over the world. In my mind, you know. Yeah, it, it certainly is. You know, and and that and that idea that that um that. Uh, ethical dilemma, which is called the drowning child scenario, mm. which was invented by uh, Peter Singer, um, who who is also uh, some would say a kind of misery focused ethicist, right? He's sort of he 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 still calls himself a utilitarian because he values the positive things like happiness and pleasure, but he also but he weighs enormously uh, more um, misery and suffering. 
And so he created that scenario where, you know, you're walking along, going to a new a job interview and you're wearing your best suit and nice new leather, th- leather shoes. And, and then you happen across a, p- a park where there's a pond and in, out in the pond, a few feet out, there's a child struggling in the water and like clearly struggling to, to not drown. Mm-hmm. And the question is, do you, do you go in and, 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 and save the child? And if you ask a group of people, which I have asked my students multiple times because it's a fun activity for like an ethics tech ethics you know kickstart they all say absolutely like what the hell why is it even a question of course i'd go in and then i say and then i remind them it's going to ruin your you know thousand dollar suit and your your 900 you know your 200 dollars shoes and they go it's a child's life at stake you know of course you go in you know and then i say oh well you might miss your job interview because you can't go to your job interview soaking wet and and it might take time and who knows and so you're going to miss your job interview that's that could be months of income that's another you know maybe ten fifteen thousand dollars racked up and they look at me like i'm just a monster like it's a child's life right they're all so righteous at that moment and then you start to sort of it kind of is a trick. It's sort of tight. You start tightening the noose, right? And you say, well, what about if I gave you a button, a red button that you could press? And when it pre- when you pressed it, it would take $15,000 out of your bank account. And then across the world, on the other side of the world, you could be assured there'd be like a video. You could be assured that it would save a drowning girl across the world from drowning. And then they look at you and they're like, Hmm. they start to tell that you're like, you've got them, you know, uh, because the reality is all of us have that button always. And it's not $15,000. It's like $150, right? So if you give $150 to UNICEF, they'll like vaccinate like a hundred children against malaria. And, and those, and, and out of those hundred children, two of them would have gotten malaria and one of them would have died, you know? And so you can, you can save a child's life for like only a hundred, a couple hundred bucks. Mostly I would say, if you want to, if anyone listening wants to do this, go give money to UNICEF. UNICEF is a fantastic charity that helps children all over the world from all kinds of things, malaria, malnutrition, education, you know, liberation of girls. They're fantastic and, and you should give them money. But, but what people, what people, but then people are, they start to withdraw because they're like, well, 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 I can't, you know, I can't save them all. And I can't, they start to have all these rationalizations. But so, so there's this weird thing where when you're right there, there's this immediacy. And then when you're distant from it in some way, you start to drift back and your urgency dies way down. Mm. And Peter Singer, uh, you know, he has an explanation for this, which is, he kind of just says like, people are bad. <laughs> like that's bad. <laughs> They're immoral to think that way. And if they were more moral, they would have what he calls an expanding circle of care, right? Where they would care, they would care impartially about other human beings. And basically for him, you know, sainthood is to like care impartially about all human beings everywhere and not sainthood kind of being a craven sort of immoral sort of consumeristic narrow-minded person is someone who just cares about the very narrow circle of themselves and them, those people around them and things that are like right near them. I, I don't agree with this. I mean, I love the example and Peter Singer is a, you know, a great thinker and I admire everything he's done. Um, but, but I have a different explanation for this, which is, which is actually that human beings have that, that moral panic, that, that moral urgency, it only occurs when the human being believes that the misery is avoidable. And that means taking less misery to eliminate than it is to tolerate. That's the definition of avoidable. So 
it's into, you could say it's intol it's 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 intolerable because mm -hmm. if it was tolerable you they just tolerate it but it's yeah. intolerable it takes more, it takes less misery to get rid of it and so we're kind of trying to optimize the amount of misery around ourselves we we've evolved to do this and so as the as the child gets further and further away and the ability to affect their lives becomes more and more hazy the avoidability actually goes down right because you start to think well that's not really avoidable for me anymore because the money might be wasted or who knows and it mm -hmm. may not get there i can't really perceive it being done exactly right um and so that means that no one is act there, there isn't really much many people who are more moral than others i mean there's probably a bit of a bell curve of the sentiment of misericordia the sentiment of panic for the distress of others but but most people are you know probably 95 percent of people are inside you know two standard deviations of of that bell curve we're all pretty much the same morality we just have different appreciation of the facts and different predictions of the future which change our perception of what's avoidable and what's not and that changes our our moral urgency to do something so it, it's a different interpretation of that same uh dilemma that um mm -hmm. that i think is more accurate and i guess in the book you you point out that if you think rationally about this you're not actually thinking about what humans do you're suggesting that um a more natural position or more um instinctual position might be that we are uh, caregivers or we are altruistic by default and actually you have to think rationally to to, to not <laughs> to almost to, right. to, to um given this maybe you know um abstraction so the further away you get for something something being urgent it, it kind of falls off for you but um by default you're you're going to viscerally feel <laughs> something aren't you yeah. uh, as a human being yeah. and, and and react to that yeah yeah so so yeah that it's our it's most ethics are based on the idea of some you know quote unquote higher i hate the idea that it's higher because it's just a, that's just a you know that's just like a a made up idea but you know this higher notion of ra of reason maybe transcendental reason or practical reason uh, or uh calculation of some you know using our calculative kind of neocortex that's like our highest that must be where our morality comes from or connection to the divine you know following god's law um must be you know these are the things that are that are the ways to be ethical in our society today i mean christian ethics is hugely you know hugely powerful in america today um just like you know muslim ethics is very powerful in uh, in the islamic world and and so misericordianism takes a different perspective which is actually uses our it actually says that our our actual morality comes from our our instincts and not just even our and our feelings but not even just even our higher feelings like sophisticated you know romantic love or or joy for each other for some kind of global or something actually it comes from our most basic feeling which is fear and self-preservation which it turns out that human beings out of all the animals human beings uniquely have evolved to have our fear for self-preservation has really become prehensile uh, I'll, I'll give you an example so if you if you look at like a like a duck like a duck with the little ducklings around right if you like go up and grab some of the ducklings and pull them away from the mama duck that mama duck's gonna be like ah! <laughs> freak out you know like get away from my babies you know <laughs> right it's gonna have moral panic it's gonna have 
you know, it's going to feel panic. It's going to have a heightened uh, episodic memory, and it's going to have and it's going to have distress. Okay, that's moral moral urgency. It's a biological feeling. Okay, now if right in front of that duck, you take like a duck stuffed animal baby, and you like mash it to bits right in front of him. <laughs> It's just going to look at you like you're crazy. Like, what are you doing, you stupid human? It's going to have zero, zero moral panic. Zero. Right? Because it's a, it's a stuffed animal. It, it has no yeah, bi- yeah. connection. Okay. Now, take any human child. Okay? Any human child, if you take any stuffed animal that has two eyes and like a mouth, so it has some kind of face, and you take the stuffed animal and you put them right in front of them and the baby, you know, the kid looks at the eyes of the stuffed animal and then you just viciously punch the stuffed animal. <laughs> I don't recommend doing this. But if you do that, the kid will be like, oh, they will have the same panic. They will, they will have episodic memory, panic, and distress at you, you know, punching that stuffed animal. Mm-mm. This is, my mom says this, is, my mom's a psychiatrist. She says this is a good test for psycho, psychopathy. Because a psychopath doesn't care if you punch the animal, the stuffed animal, but the everyone else does. Because we, because psychopaths don't have misericordia. That that is that's what a psychopath is: is a person whose brain doesn't have misericordia. Uh, the fe- misericordia is the feeling of moral urgency at the distress of others. Mm. So so this is the difference between human beings and, and all other animals. And Darwin talks about this. Darwin says it multiple times that the biggest difference between human beings and other animals is not tool usage, is not reason, is not, you know, it's not, it's not that. He said the biggest difference is human beings really care about like everything and other animals, they only care about like their family and them. Mm. And that's it. Um, <laughs> so um, Darwin yeah. quote, boom, name drop. So, because uh, that's because of who I am. So, if if we are like hardwired, let's say we're hardwired for this, right? Does that kind of like throw out the window the, the kind of uh, maybe like our decision making in that process? Like, do we have limited agency there? And does that account for like no cultural environmental factors? Do you think? That is just the case, right? Like biologically, we're like hardwired um, to to viscerally feel in this way, yeah. and the, the cultural aspect is less important. Maybe we can almost trick ourselves not to to react through um, logic, through uh, experience, and rational. Um, uh, is that kind of how you how you thinking about? Yeah. It? So you know, this is a this is a amyg- amygdala function. So the the fear response is an amygdala function. Amygdala is two little almond shaped size brain um, organs, organella, right above your ears, right above and behind your ears are where the amygdala are, and uh, in especially the right amygdala, this is where uh, it seems like, given kind of the current state of neuroscience. Um, this is where this this uh, sentiment, this sort of process of being concerned about other beings, um, their well-being, it seems to be located there. Strangely, it lights up like you know, it lights up like crazy when when this happens, when you see another being in distress that you believe has a mind. So you have to believe that it has a mind. We don't do mm-hmm. this for rocks, right? <laughs> but if it has a if it's a stuffed animal with two little eyes and a mouth, then our brain is like, there's a mind in there. And then, oh, he got punched in the face. Ah, panic, moral urgency, right? But the amygdala is a pre-rational, a pre, you know, it's before the eyeballs. It goes like straight from the eyeballs 
back to the occipital lobe to process the visual information and then straight to the the hypothalamus and the amygdala before it goes to the cerebral cortex okay but after the fact the cerebral cortex can be like no 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 amygdala you got you're just you're wigging out man chill you're wigging out for the wrong reason this is fine and this is like this is what happens when you show somebody a picture this is a classic amygdala brain scan the way they do the amygdala brain scan is they show people pictures of faces of like totally comfortable happy faces and then they show a face that's like like ah crazy ah oh my god yeah, yeah. i'm t i'm in i'm in distress and the and and the amygdala flashes like really blasts on the brain scan but the cerebral cortex flashes right afterwards and is like it's just a picture calm down so your reason, what that suggests is that exactly what Rousseau, this is all in Rousseau. Rousseau also said this. He said the way that we're good is our natural pity. Natural pity is what he called it. I call it misericordianism. Mm -hmm. um, and then reason actually can suppress natural pity. Reason can suppress misericordia. And that's how we get, you know, the ability to, first of all, not be wandering around like, panicking all the time for stupid reasons right like we don't want to over over panic but the, we can also do things like i mean we can do like horrible things like holocaust other human beings because we've been convinced that that's actually like a needful thing like an, un like an unavoidably an unavoidable misery like sorry we just have to do this i have i've constructed all these you know horrible sort of ghoulish logic to support that we can then be convinced to do it so yeah, we have to be careful with whenever we suppress that. And if you're if you're taking it like that one step further, um, for me that that strikes me that we could have that response right to a and we do have that response to things that move and have eyes, like you said. Um, you know, we have this kind of I want to say emotional, but like like you said, it's, it's this complex combination of things which happen to us when we identify something that looks like it could be a mind and, and do you think that's sl slightly worrying for like things that are artificial and that could have some mm. um behavior um actions in the world um feedback interactions with us on a uh, seemingly emotional level that, that that's an interesting kind of like a manipulative yeah sort of yeah way. consequence yeah. of that yeah. instinct almost um Oh sure, we're we're manipulable that way. Yeah, mm. don't don't yeah don't be a creepy you know creepy insect robot that has a million eyes. Be just like a robot with a face with a, with two eyes and a mouth. Human <laughs> beings will like you a lot better. <laughs> That's true. Um, I guess you at that point you can make your you know Donald. Let's go back to Donald Trump. You're a Donald Trump bot, right? <laughs> Oh yeah, people love him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Be a huge narcissist. Everyone loves that. They do. Yeah, we could uh, wheel him out and uh, get him to do. Yeah. Maybe that's what he does. Maybe oh, there is robot. one. Yeah, oh my god, Donald Bot. Donald, Donald Bot two thousand. And he just says yeah. like random stuff. <laughs> He's sputtering. He kind of sounds like an LLM, actually, like a hallucinating yeah. LLM that just sort of sputters out <laughs> loose, loosely connected. <laughs> things <laughs> we need to update yeah. him yeah i don't uh, blame donald trump everyone hates donald trump but i i see him as just a symptom of hmm. he's just a symptom he's not the cause of anything he he's a symptom of of our just degradation of our educational system the degradation of our political system you know that we haven't caught kept up with 
commonsensical reforms like like universal health care is an obvious mm. you know improvement um or 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 i'm really into uh, ranked choice voting like we just you know like yeah. we know yeah. what ranked choice voting is the fact that we don't do it is just really i'll just say it like it's stupid it's just stupid yeah. we yeah, need yeah. to do it it's yeah. the same thing I, it's literally the same thing is if you were running a restaurant and every night like you got complaints of like four or five people getting sick and then every day you notice that like mike would go to the bathroom and not wash his hands you know like it's just that it's so simple it's just perfectly causal you know um and and, and if you don't fire mike or teach him how to wash his hands people are going to keep getting sick you know if you don't do ranked choice voting if you don't implement universal health care you're, you're going to destroy democracy. You're going to like, de, you know, devolve into demagoguery mm. and, and, and psychosis, you know, this kind of political psychosis. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm oversimplifying things, but I, to me, it, to me, it seems like we should think about things in terms of stupidity. I, a lot, a lot of great authors have done that, you know, like catch the catch 22 by, by, um, yeah. by Heller. It, it really, he's really talking about how stupid war is every page. He, he's not saying, oh, it's so complicated and I'm so smart. So I've sort of figured it out. He's literally saying it's very stupid. Uh, and every little thing about it is very stupid and very obviously stupid to anyone who, who isn't just kind of caught up in the rationalizations for it. Yeah, yeah. And I, th and I think I, that's kind of what I'm trying to channel actually. Um, well, if anyone's interested specifically in listening to another episode of me chatting, uh, sorry, um, go to episode 35, where I talked to uh, Maria Slakovic about, and, and she, she has a lot of stuff to say about um, different ways of voting and systems and uh, oh, representation. Cool. Um, so cool. check that out. It's really good. She knows a lot about it, much more than I could possibly ever know. Uh, I'm just going to underline that with there's so much stupidity in the world and <laughs> um, we should just be constantly fighting it. Yeah, let's I let's guess. get some NI out there. Let's get some AI out there. Like, let's yep. just get as much I as we can because the there's I's. so much S. We got to yeah. get rid of the S. <laughs> so much BS. So much BS, right. <laughs> BS with no AI. Let's do no. it. You know, let's yeah. go. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so I have I have another one for you. So I imagined, um, let's go back to the AI aspect of this. And uh, what I was thinking was um, one of the things that you brought up in the kind of AI segment near the end of your book was maybe it would be cool if we had like a misery detector, and that could yeah, be like yeah, a I think that should AI be the first, artifact. Yeah, that should be the first AI alignment thing created. Yeah, is is an AI that all it does is a red light turns on when someone's in misery. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, misery yeah. or not, it's like hot dog or not, right? But it's just misery or not. It's a it's a d digital amygdala. Yeah, we should create yeah. a digital amygdala. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it can it can poke us and be like, no, 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 Seri seriously though, yeah, seriously, yeah. don't don't ignore this one. Right. S seriously. This is seriously a problem. The red light's yeah. persistently on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should like, really check that. <laughs> no, no. It's like one of those... This um, is important. I, I had to deal with a, fire, a um, carbon monoxide alarm, which had run out of batteries earlier. And it's just like, yeah. no, I'm fix running me. out of batteries. I'm running out of batteries. Yeah, you Come could on. die. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, a, it's yeah. really annoying. <laughs> yeah, digital amygdala. When people are talking about oh, how do we do AI alignment? Well, my, my, the misericordian suggestion which I think is 
I mean, I argue in the book that misericordianism is, is actually superior to other ethics. I mean, I think it can, mm. in a foot race with other ethics, it, it beats them. It beats everybody. I, I think, I'm really, I'm really pleased I, do. I don't have like comments underneath the episodes. Why? Oh yeah, people would be like, no, no Kantianism. Ah, nah, we gotta nah, be, nah. Uh, you know, everyone's got their own yeah, axe yeah. to grind. But I, I, I'm happy to go, you know, be in a very civil debate with anyone about any ethic, and and I and argue why. It, it's quite a, it's quite a powerful ethic. It, it explains everything. It works in every situation that I that I've been able to come up with. Um, and I sit around thinking about all kinds of horrible things. <laughs> But <laughs> but yeah, we should have a digital amygdala. That would be the recommendation for AI alignment. Create a digital amygdala. Create something, an AI that has AI vision, or you could describe scenarios to it in, in text, or it has vision and you could show it pictures and have it be, you know, 99.999% detect whether someone is in misery or not. Um, and if you had that, I, I, that'd be good because then that would be the core. Uh, that would be the conscience, the Jiminy Cricket of AI. Would be that module. Put it into everything. Say by law, you have to be. You have to have an amygdala in the being in the AI. You know, and it has to be guarded so it could never be like self-edited out by the by the AI. Then then you would have essentially roughly Asimov's rules, right? So Asimov's rules are misery. They're actually an exact copy of misericordianism uh, but the only difference is without the instinct for self defense self self-preservation i think that's so, isn't isn't that the third one isn't it something like that uh yeah the first one is don't let any humans come yep. to harm the second one is i can look them up but it's basically they they are misericordianism without self um Mm, I thought I thought it had self-preservation in there. It, it does, but they're they're it's last. It's like yeah, not, yeah, it's yeah, not. Yeah. But human beings, it's reversed. It's first, right? So human beings are like yeah. the the most important avoidable misery is your own avoidable misery because it's your you have the most control over that because it's your life, right? So yeah, the first law: a robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. So there's where the misericordianism is. It's not just an. It's not just a robot can't harm a human being. It's that. Mm. Through inaction, you can't let a human come to harm. This is an important problem. This is a major problem with Western philosophy that actually I'm one of my academic papers I will write is about this. But the harm principle really bakes people's noodles. Uh, it kind of confuses them because there's transitive harm. I harm you, subject, verb, object, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's intransitive harm. They came to harm harm just happened to them. Mm. They have a harmful situation, right? Those are, that, there's no culpability. There's no, I did this, right? Mm. And, and if you read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, where, the section where he describes the harm principle, he doesn't differentiate between those two. He wish he, he fishtails around. Sometimes he's saying they're doing actions of commission that hurt people. Sometimes he's saying, oh, this is a harmful situation. We should, you know, he doesn't he doesn't clarify and so people fight all on all different sides they they say oh you know it's all about you know the government can't do taxation this is what hardcore libertarians say the government can't do taxation because that's an act of commission of harm right 
But if the government's pulling away taxes from like wealthy people who have plenty of money in order to alleviate the harm of whatever it is, whether it's military defense or, or welfareism, which is the two things the government does, then that's perfectly acceptable according to a intransitive harm principle, right? So a transitive harm principle and intransitive harm people get people all, all whacked out um, because, because Mill never clarified it and really no one since then even actually has really clarified it. So anyways, yeah, so if we had a digital amygdala, we would essentially have the, the Asimov laws because the Asimov laws actually require a digital amygdala because the robot would need to first identify if a human being was going to fall into some kind of avoidable misery or mm -hmm. not. But I guess at that point, uh, I, f I feel like I'm going to try and twist you up in knots here and see if... Please do. Uh, yoga class, free yoga class. Yeah. You ready? <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> So it, it strikes me that that's, a, that's an urgency thing, again, like coming back to the, the immediacy of the situation. So maybe there's a robot, let's say a embodied AI, as you might say these days, a embodied AI or robot, which mm -hmm. um, has these Asimov rules because it has this amygdala um, unit which uh, I'm definitely going to go and make tomorrow. Um, <laughs> after my uh, Please long do. day. And then I think it would be make... very important to have the digital amygdala. Yeah. yeah. So there's a presumption there that we, we, we did it and it knows when someone's going to come to harm and maybe they drop a knife or something and it's going to land on their foot and the robot's able to like knock it away. And it's, it's a very kind of like uh, instantaneous, um, visceral sort of harm, right, which has been avoided and is hopefully avoidable. But then you get the situation where, a bit like the taxes, where they people drink drink alcohol, or they smoke, or they they partake in gambling, or, or things which are deemed to be in yeah. the excess negative, or lead to negative outcomes. So there's this, so that the, I feel like there's still so much murkiness uh, in my yeah. mind, anyway, I, I, I mean, for, for you, maybe not so much about what harm constitutes or what avoidable misery constitutes yeah. uh, and how those are enacted. Because you, to the extreme, let's say, let's take this robot in the extreme, we effectively get the paperclip maximizing robot again, where it's trying to um, prevent all misery, <laughs> all avoidable yeah. misery. And then and that's, and that's the plot you know, of the movie. That's the plot of the book. I robot, right. Is the robots take yeah. over because they're like the humans are causing too much misery to humans. So we're going to take over the world. You know? Yeah. I mean, so the, yeah, the so book's that's very different to the film, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well that's the film then. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the premise of the film. Right. Um, so there's a couple things. One is we say, you know, the word is avoidable. Mm. Um, but I, I kind of chalk that word up with a few other qualities. So one is that principle of intolerance, you know, the too much, uh, you know, it takes less misery to eliminate than to, than to tolerate. Uh, mm. That's one, that's the core definition, but there's actually, it also includes consensual. So if people consensually do things mm. in copus mentis, I mean, consensually mm. in copus mentis do things, that's also, yeah. that's, that's unavoidable misery, right? So if yeah. you decide to, you know, drink yourself silly. That's unavoidable. Now, could you do some, you know, could you prevent that harm at a more systemic level? Mm. You could, you you know, you could make it harder to get liquor or something. Yeah. And then, and then it also includes uh, deserved, deserved. 
So if people perceive a misery as deserved, mm. then their 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 moral urgency goes out the window. Mm. So it's more like imitating the the human kind of urgency, the moral urgency in right. a way. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the weird thing too: is that misericordianism is not a universal purely rational like it doesn't apply to space aliens i have a whole chapter in the book about how kant actually believed in space aliens he believed he literally believed that there were aliens on other planets yeah and and he said that the categorical imperative applied to everyone even the aliens uh, but misericordianism actually doesn't apply to anyone else it's it's a human it's a human species level trait it's mm. a homo sapien thing it's not it's not some principle of the universe um, it's it's not some you know universalizable thing, but it is the right thing to do for human beings, and so it is the right. So if we want human robots, hu humane, you could even say humane robots, then you would you would have them behave like a human being. They would uh, they would in, they would not be they would not tolerate avoidable misery. They would feel panic and episodic memory. You would be conscious of someone's autonomy, their rights to agency, and their. Um, um yeah they if they consented to it yeah then it would be yeah, like yeah. well then you can't do anything about it and you, you know yeah yeah exactly yeah okay fair enough um yeah. <laughs> so that sort of simplifies things yeah we yeah. don't want the robots running around shutting down tattoo parlors yeah well i mean you know. all sorts of like in in when i was reading the book i was thinking like i did dentist i really don't Dent like <laughs> the dentist. Yeah. i know it's good for yeah. me but yeah. That the misery. That yeah, no, consensual and deserve. So consensual and deserving miseries are. are fine. Those, those off. Yeah, they're off the hook. And if you watch people, that's the way they behave. You watch. You walk by a tattoo parlor. You don't care. Even though a mm. tattoo parlor, if it there wasn't consent, would be a torture chamber. Mm. Right. That's what a tattoo parlor is when there's no consent. It becomes absolutely horrific. Uh, you know. Yeah. So 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 consent is makes all the difference. I mean, sex, right? Sex is intimacy. Consensually, non-consensually is rape, one of the most horrible things mm -hmm. in existence. So it's consent makes this huge literal kind of black and white shift uh yeah. in our in our moral uh urgency. Yeah. That we that we feel. And do you think that's the sort of way of thinking will help us on a kind of more macro level, you know, if we we've been talking day-to-day -day, people walking around the world but maybe constructing those systems and you know those ways of working legislation governments that sort of thing is, is that sort of thing that can help us at that that level so as this, well yeah th so this is the interesting thing so i think this is quite interesting so the 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 principle of misericordianism comes from just human beings like on a biological level like if you had humans in a zoo and you know, biologists were like watching them. They'd be like, "Oh, just like Darwin did." It was like, "Oh, this is so interesting! Like, look how they behave. They're so weird." You know, they they really care about other things, other beings, not even just their family, but other beings. They even care about invisible beings, like ghosts and gods, and you know, <laughs> invisible minds that just they think float around in the universe. You know, or are the or the universe itself is a mind, and so we care. Mother Nature, you know, human beings are these weird. So that so if you think about it, like a zoologist you're like whoa that's so weird how they behave so then the question is okay why should that should that then be the basis of how we build like policy and laws and mm -hmm. and i mean i don't have a good reason why but i just answer yes yes like if you're gonna make laws for human beings 
those laws should be in accord with those human beings moral sentiments yeah and so yes the answer is yes you know if you were going to make laws for sharks i think you would make those laws according to the shark moral temperaments you know you know they're sharks it's to govern the sharks then they should use this you know um um yeah so i think i think yeah so the 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 misericordianism where the tires really hit the road and this is the same for utilitarianism where the tires really hit the road is institutional level behavior you know individuals are mostly in what i call moral equilibrium which means there is no avoidable misery in their environment. That that's that's your and my life most of the time, mm. right? We're just mostly you know we get a little hungry, avoidable misery. We immediately go make a sandwich, you know, or our friends and family are right there and they're hungry. Okay, make some food. Or like you get sleepy, you go to sleep. Like there's only very little avoidable misery. It's very rare that there's a drowning child, right? Um, so human most individuals are mostly not feeling any moral urgency and therefore they're just focusing on other things because mm. that's the cool thing about misericordianism is when there's no avoidable misery you can just make your life great you can like bake cakes and have fun and do whatever because 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 it's a free zone morally once there's no avoidable misery present and uh and people just try to make their lives good it almost becomes a utilitarian world once there's no avoidable misery in mm -hmm. your surroundings right so it's sort of in the second gear is utilitarian in the first gear it's misericordianism so but institutions like governments and huge corporations and wealthy people who have you know states with all this wealth they have so much ability to reduce misery that mm -hmm. they actually have almost all the moral uh almost all the moral demands are on them um they're culpable for all these things because they have the agency and the ability yeah. so it's, it says so more about capacity right they, ha they have the, the the ability the capacity to to do something exactly. about it and there's yeah. a latin phrase for this ad impossibilia nemo tenentur tenetur and that that's a, from kant and it just means ought implies can which means you know you're not obligated to do something you can't do and you are obligated to do something you can do that's useful so um any high net worths anywhere <laughs> listening to yeah. this right now well because high net worth <laughs> people are always saying it's somebody else's fault that they're just the victim of all these things and it's it's crap it's total crap it's like no yeah. with great power comes great responsibility spider-man is not hard it's not hard you know again we're not stupid here like we know spider-man you know and yeah. and so yeah we have to remember that you know you and i as just i don't know about you but my net worth isn't high enough <laughs> for it to matter but like everyone has an obligation proportional to their agency that's it and so don't go to sleep crying on your pillow because you didn't do enough for like climate change today mm -hmm. you know it's not your responsibility it's the responsibility of millionaires and billionaires and governments and corporations and when they fail at those responsibilities they're immoral they're culpable individuals like us we should do our part but our part is teeny it's like a grain of sand in the in the in the sea compared to the 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 responsibility of these large organizations and wealthy people i i would uh i would partially agree with you um but i also think that the the consequence of the society that we live in is that you know we get people like um uh greta thunberg and people like that who just yeah. who make it their thing to to to, to get in the way and, and to to become um 
uh, give themselves the ability, let's say, to work at having the ability yeah. to do something. Um, so I wouldn't. I would disagree in the light of great urgent catastrophes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and I disagree that it's not. It's it's everyone's job. Uh, it's just that pe- more people, ha- uh, some people, have a greater ability to do something this instant, right now, <laughs> and, right, and, right. and maybe they should be feeling the urgency. Yeah. I mean, um, individuals do have an obligation again, but mm. proportional to their agency. So if you see a way to make an impact, mm. if you see a way to like. You know, if you're like, no, I'm going to build a movement and it takes one person to start a movement. So I'm going to do that. Then you do have the obligation to go do that. Even if it's just you on a street corner starting out because you see it, you Mm. see the avoidability of the misery. But if you say it's just too big, I don't see how to do anything. Just, just be, be calm because it's, it's not, (laughs) it's not your obligation. It's only your obligation if you do see a way. To, yeah. to, to, to fix it or to, or to impact it. And if you're yeah. like, you know what, all I can do today is I'm going to hang out the laundry instead of using the dryer, then that's your only moral obligation. You don't have any additional obligation besides what you can do. Um, I would, I'm going to caveat with that with, it's good to know what you're capable of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? This is, yeah. You know, the key, the key prayer, the key prayer of misericordianism is the serenity prayer. You know the serenity prayer? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't mind. You're, 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 that's okay. The serenity prayer is God grant me. I mean, we're going to talk about God. Sorry. Okay. Uh, you know, yep. don't, you, don't, you don't have to be Christian. It's just a thing. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage yep. to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That uh, is it. That is misericordianism right there. Bam. It doesn't mean misericordianism is Christian. It just means that, you know, it's a universal ethic. I mean, it's the ethic of Homo sapiens. So you, it's going to be in all different cultures. You're going to find, you know, artifacts of misericordianism. And that right there is like primo misericordianism. <laughs> um, so, Adam, the, the last question we normally ask on the podcast, like the very first question, is what, um, if anything, scares and excites you about this AI technologically mediated future? Yeah, I'm mostly super excited. I, like I've said, I'm I'm very AI philic. I'm very pro AI. I think we should go for it. Um, maybe I'm like in the Mark Andreessen camp. I just recently watched his little talk on Joe Rogan or something where he was talking about his book, where he's very like AI is going to be all gumdrops and roses. Um, but yeah, I actually agree with him. I think I think AI. I took Waymo. I took a Waymo self driving car yesterday two times to and from a concert. It was fantastic. It was a great, great experience. Better, better than with a human driver. Um, and as I got out of the car, I said, "Thank you, Waymo." <laughs> Waymo went, oh, it doesn't really, it doesn't respond. I wish it was like, you know, like did yeah, a little R two D two, you know. But uh, you know, so I thought it was great. Um, I'm super excited about um, education for AI, like. Like like Khan 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 Academy Sal Khan is like right on it as usual. That guy is so awesome. He was just like, boom, we're gonna implement like a ChatGPT, uh, you know, teaching assistant inside of Khan Academy. So if you're stuck, you can just ask questions and it gives you great answers. Like exactly, this is like the perfect use of AI. It's absolutely perfect. Um, You know, I'm super excited about um, any kind of like. 
you know, like helping doctors, you know, with knowledge, what's it called? Um, decision support, um, you know, getting rid of lawyers, you know, <laughs> just getting rid of them. <laughs> you know, what do they say? What's 20,000 lawyers at the bottom of the sea? A good start. Um, so I'm really excited to just, yeah, I think AI is going to be this like helper that just takes, you know, difficult, high information, high knowledge, high cognitive load jobs and makes them like super, super more doable for the people doing them. Mm. And that is going to be great because we need way, way more of that brain power like available. We need a lot more I to fight all the S. Mm. And I and I think if that's AI or NI, I don't really care as long as it's I because that, yeah. there's too much S. <laughs> <laughs> and is there something that, I mean, is there anything that scares you about the situation or is it? No, nothing scares me about it. You know, all the, all the examples that people come up with, I find entirely harebrained, um, you know, paper clips and blah, 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 blah. I, I just think that's totally harebrained. Um, mostly because people are assuming a ton of other componentry that is nowhere on the horizon to be created. Like, for example, I have not encountered anyone. I mean, I'm not totally into this space, but I'm a, you know, I'm a computer science professor in 2023. Like I am in uh, talking to a lot of people, reading a lot of stuff about AI. I've never heard anyone say, we're going to create a will, a will component, like a component that would make the AI make decisions for itself or have some priorities that it sets for itself. I've never heard anyone say that. Uh, and that would, that would like, that's a really important, uh, thing, you know, also like, you know, there's, there's unplugging human beings. We can just like unplug anything, you know, like, you know, and even if we couldn't really unplug it, we could like shoot its electrical source with a missile. It's like, oh, they took over the missile system, cut their electrical system with a saw. You know, it's like (laughs) the, the, the electrical systems and the systems of energy that would flow to an AI are incredibly vulnerable, really vulnerable. Um, so, you know, I think it, I think a lot of worst case scenarios are really just total, um, they're trying to get clicks. They're just trying to get clout and clicks. And the reality is AI is just going to be this like fantastic, um, benefit to especially the middle class but also the poor and and i think it's actually gonna it's actually gonna bring the wealth i hope it brings the wealthy down a peg or two because it'll kind of decentralize their power and and oh and and remove gatekeepers that are preventing normal people from from uh from participating at a higher level in terms of decision making and you know Mm. so i actually think it's just going to be an overwhelming success yeah well, Maybe I'll I, eat my words. I hope I, I don't eat my words. I, I feel like um, I'm going to be pleased if that is the case. So yeah, I mean, yeah. one okay, one thing I am scared about is mm. technological unemployment. That I'm scared about because you know there's a world in which you know 20 million people are made unemployed. You know, or 30 million people, 40 million, maybe even 100 million people are are not 100 million. There's only 150 million people employed in America. So maybe 50 million people, a third of the workforce, just like unemployed the next, you know, in the next 10 years, because we make all fast food workers, that's 5 million people, robots do fast food, all drivers, you know, all the secretaries, drivers, that's another, you know, 10 million people. So it adds up, maybe you get to 30 or 40 million people unemployed in 10 years. That's really dangerous. The thing is, is that our response to that, what I saw in COVID was 
the possibility where people are like, oh, send out checks and, you know, provide insurances and prevent, you know, re- mm, yeah. you know, suspend, suspend evictions and get rid of the, and essentially it would just force us to build out the welfare systems we should have built the last 30 years, you know? Mm, so, yeah. and it, we did that in COVID, like we didn't do it great, but we did it under a Republican president, you know, under a right-wing president, we like sent out, you know, $6,000 in checks to people and gave a child tax credit to everybody who got, you know, thousands of dollars per every kid. And mm. I just thought like, oh, this is going to force us to build the welfare system we should have built anyways. So yeah. even the technological unemployment, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of scared because it's going to be kind of scary there kind of as we go through the pass. But I feel like we're prepared to just be like, send those people checks, like basic income or whatever. And, and uh, you know. Um, Adam, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, how do people uh, get hold of you, talk to you, follow you, all that sort of thing? LinkedIn is probably the best. I'm kind of off Twitter ever since the Musk kind of trashed it. So LinkedIn, I'm AJ Browse, uh, Adam Browse on LinkedIn. You can go to adambrouse.com and I always put up everything I'm working on there. And um, yeah, you can listen to my podcast, Solutions from the Multiverse, um, which is a new unheard of solution every week to the world's problems. Um, and personal problems, kind of small and big problems alike. And um, yeah, all those ways are great. Check me out on Amazon. I've got four books, a third, fourth book coming out, so three books live already, and they're all very different and very interesting, I hope, and fun to read, easy reads about nonfiction topics, well-researched nonfiction p- topics. They'll give you superpowers. Every book is promised to give you at least one superpower. Sweet. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> cool. Uh, with that, I'm going to fly home now. So, <laughs> All right. Thank you, fly, Adam. Fly. Thanks, Ben. This was fun. Take care. Hi, and welcome to the end of the podcast. Thanks again for Adam for coming on the show. Do check out his books. I'm getting to the end of The Future of Good by Adam Brass. So I'll put up a review on the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash machine the fix when it's ready. Um, what I really like about that book and what Adam was talking about in this episode was this kind of reframing or invigorating of this idea of evolutionary utilitarianism, this uh, coming together of these ideas around perhaps what is a social creature and how does that, how do those social creatures enact in the world and then how can you square that with more kind of macro-ethical philosophy, uh, kind of meta-philosophy ideas there. I think probably some of my feelings will come out in that book review of how those things kind of hung together for me as well. I also had the privilege of going on Adam and Scott's show, Solutions from the Multiverse, so do check that out. Um, my episode is episode 68, solutionsfromthemultiverse.com. On that episode, we're concentrating on AI ethics generally, but also on the idea of machine ethics and how do you imbue a system or a AI with ethics or morality in of itself, um, and also tying those back to some of Adam's ideas from this episode. So do check that out. Thanks again for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.